Hello, this year, 1992, sees the 25th anniversary of the making of what some people think is the greatest rock album of all time, and certainly an extraordinary mirror of its age, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We brought together Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, and many others to talk about the making of that record. We've got hold of the original tapes, and we're going to show the process. It took five months to make. It cost £40,000. Peanuts by present-day conditions, but the very first album that the Beatles made, Please Please Me, took one day only. So in that, as well as in many other things, they were revolutionary. The album was made here in the EMI studios in Abbey Road. At that time, it was full of white-coated engineers and classical musicians and orchestras popping in and out of their studios. And the recording was supervised, of course, by George Martin, who was crucial to the Beatles' development. And one of the stories we're about to tell is the story of four very eager-to-learn young men and one upright producer interested in experiment. This week's one day with Fab. I'm Ed Chin, and I'm John Stone. Well, let's see. Paul is still on the road. He's getting close to finishing up his tour. His tour ends on the 16th in New Jersey. Do you think he booked this tour so he wouldn't have to play the Jubilee? He did show up in the Jubilee. He sent a little video, and there's a little bit of him on the special with Gail King. Gail and Oprah have become friends with. Paul and Mary. Well, they're all very gregarious people. (laughs) This is true, and Oprah never hesitates to tell the story. I want you to know that since I was 12, I wanted to marry Paul. (laughs) They did not hesitate to advertise the fact that Paul McCartney was going to be in the special. He's in it for, oh, maybe 90 seconds. (laughs) How much more do you want of Paul McCartney? What more can he say? Uh, Well, he's got lots of stories about the Queen, you know. Reading the Queen, it's an in-joke. Most of what he's talking about is he's talking about the when he wrote the essay. Let's go to Paul McCartney at 10. What happened at 10? Because the coronation was approaching, there was a competition for all the schools in England. You had to write an essay on the monarchy. And I liked that idea. You grew up to be a pretty good writer, Mr. McCartney, <laughs> Sir Paul. It had the lyrics of a love song as Paul wrote about our lovely young queen. And lo and behold, I actually won it. I won my division, and 
are very nervous because they called out my name. Paul McCartney. And I, I stumbled up with legs of jelly. And it was the first time I'd ever kind of really been on a stage. <laughs> well, I can see that they're, they're close now. Right. And Ringo did not make the special. Well, you know, he's more popular in America. <laughs> this is true. And he's also made his thoughts regarding the monarchy very plain. <laughs> Elizabeth Reigns. He said he, he likes the queen. He's happy for the queen. He just wants it to end with her. No Charles. You could probably get a group of people to support that. And we'll see what becomes of it. Right. Our topic for the week, no segue this time. Other than anniversaries, I guess that's kind of a segue. There you go. It's speaking of anniversaries. We are just now passing the 55th anniversary of the release of Sgt. Pepper. Which George Martin once called a museum piece. <laughs> By the time we came to make Sgt. Pepper, we were getting a lot more freedom, artistic freedom. So we started to uh, incorporate more uh, of the kind of crazy life that, that we were living at the time into the music. There were actually a lot of specials regarding the anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. The 20th anniversary, it was 20 years ago today, there was a big special that Derek Taylor was a part of, which was also put out as a book, which is not the one we're talking about. <laughs> right. We're not talking about that one. That special is often confused with the one we're talking about. As a matter of fact, I confused it. You know, it had a very famous opening paul even used that in his concert for a little bit behind when he played sergeant pepper it looks very very primitive by today's standards it's claymation even modern claymation looks kind of like that the clay heads that they put on the wax figures were <laughs> not very good okay it's like eighth grade claymation <laughs> <laughs> there you go and then everybody else was just these flat 2D figures that had strings behind them that they pulled right and left. Right. They were dancing, but they weren't really dancing. They were just moving. But it was memorable, as you note, and it was kind of cool at the time when I was much, much younger. Yeah, we all were. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit hard to believe that was 30 years ago now. 35 years ago now, sorry. Yeah, that was longer for that than it was from that to the actual release of Sgt. Pepper. So just to summarize that very briefly, Derek Taylor was the main one who was involved. There were new interviews with Paul and George in that special. Paul notably wearing colorful suspenders. Right. But that particular one was more about the social changes that were going on at that time, which Sgt. Pepper was kind of the soundtrack. There's a little bit on the album at the beginning and the end, but it's mostly here's the hippies and what were they doing and Timothy Leary and Acid and everything else that we kind of associate with the time. Right. The BN and Haight-Ashbury, all, all that, you know, which the Beatles were interested in. George came to visit the Haight at one point. So there's a Beatle tie-in, but I would not call that a Beatle-centric. Special. 
it came to the States at the end of 1987, and I remember watching it and being kind of disappointed in it at the time. Other than the opening, it's like, oh, wow, that's cool. And then it just kind of went, oh, well, <laughs> all right. And I was just the opposite. I, I thought, cool, this is some great footage. and Because that was kind of a special year before it all turned sour in 68. People kind of make fun of the Summer of Love, but there was a feeling in the air in magazines and in fashion, everything, you know, and Sergeant Pepper again was certainly a part of that. But I enjoyed the special because it goes into the events of that time. I've seen it fairly recently and I like it much better now. Right. Well, I'm older than you, so I guess I liked it back then. You just had to grow up <laughs> get a little more experience in the beetle thing and this special the one that we are talking about the making of sergeant pepper while it's still great time has not been exceedingly kind to it well it's been supplanted by the anthology and the anthology uses stuff out of this i think they recreated i don't think they actually use the clips from this okay I'll take your word for that. It's been a while since I've seen the anthology. But at the time when it came out, it was pretty big. It had footage and isolated tracks and things that that Beatle fans had never heard before. So it was quite the event. We were talking about this offline. You know, what kind of was there before that? There was the, the Abbey Road show, which was never actually public. You got to go to the show, you got to see and hear these outtakes, and and all the rest of us got was kind of this crummy cassette that someone managed to... I had it on an album, or on several albums, actually, and I will confess, uh, you know, it was a bootleg, obviously, and I paid way too much money for a really crappy record. But, you know, that's Beatle fandom. (laughs) And now that we've gotten decent copies of it, there actually was some really cool material that they put in that uh, special. Right. But I, I think the, the, the bootleg was, you know, somebody having a, a microphone there <laughs> underneath their coat. A plastic microphone because they had metal detectors at the door. Wow. So the cassette player and the microphone had to be entirely plastic. Wow. That's soon. I remember that. So somebody figured out it. So it was at least documented, but it wasn't very good. It, it just kind of gave you some ideas of some things. And, and, um, but that was the first time we ever really got a decent idea of kind of what was in the vaults. And, and then the recording sessions came shortly thereafter. But we didn't hear anything from recording sessions, despite the fact that George w- got mad at Mark Lewis and claiming that Lewison was responsible for leaks from the vaults. That's the origin of George's feud with Mark Lewison. And even when it was proven that Mark had nothing to do with it, he, he didn't drop it. He had other things to be mad at Mark about. You're Paul's guy. Yeah, people will be people, I guess. What bugs me is that Olivia is still holding on to that, even though she has no reason to. Mark is still not welcome as someone to be writing for the official product. Right. So bringing in Mark Lewison, Mark Lewison was an advisor on this special from 1992. He's had this job a long time. (laughs) There were unique interviews with Paul from the uh, 9th of April, 1992, George on the 12th, and Ringo on the 19th. I think they were kind of using this as a dry run. They knew anthology, and the anthology interviews were coming up. 
they wanted to see, well, how can we do this? One thing we've learned about Apple is they will always release a product beforehand, which is not the thing, but it's kind of like the thing. You know, just like the audio anthologies were preceded by the live of the BBC sets. George Martin is kind of the host. The original British airing had uh, Melvin Bragg, who really only provided an introduction. In the U.S., they snipped his introduction off, and it made no difference, basically. I don't even know who Melvin Bragg is. He's a British TV figure. That would be a good reason to snip it off in the United States. Yeah, I mean, if he said anything which mattered to the special, then <laughs> right. they'd have to find a way to keep at least a little bit of it. But nope, nope they, just, they just go right into George Martin. And George Martin is really the true narrator of this special. In 1966, the Beatles have been working most successfully for three years. He got credit for this really being his album. <laughs> This is true. That's what Time Magazine said. So maybe he's just kind of stepping up. The bad thing is you can tell when George is just talking, when he's being interviewed, and when he's reading copy. He's a little bit stiff at reading copy. Yeah, well. Not a huge negative, but it's still like, oh, (laughs) okay. It's noticeable, but it's not a big deal. That's not why he was hired. (laughs) (laughs) The real reason he's there is to play with the faders. Yeah. We've gotten lots of this sort of thing in anthology, as we mentioned, and this is also the same sort of thing that Paul just gave to us in 321. Yes. The fact that 321 was in black and white, it just was really, really similar. It had a a similar feel. In the States, it just starts with a colorful card saying, the making of Sgt. Pepper. Right. And I should note, when you and I were talking about doing this, I'm going to kind of take a, a wider view to talk really about the making of Sergeant Pepper and using this as we go along, but there'll be other things that are not in this special that we'll, uh, we'll talk about. For sure. And we will, we will note when we're talking about things that are not in the special. Right. So it fades into George Martin, just sort of sitting there. The first thing is, you know, he talks about the historical value of Sergeant Pepper. And then he concludes with that statement that we mentioned earlier. He, he says, I suppose it's a museum piece. That's right. an interesting choice of words. Having just talked about the other special, it was 20 years ago today, you could go, yeah, Sergeant Pepper has to be placed in that history. And so in a way, it is a museum piece. I mean, it's more than just an album. So we got it several months later on the Disney Channel. So no, Get Back was not the first time that Disney and the Beatles hooked up together. But we get a quote from Paul where he's saying, you know, we didn't want it to be just be another album, which sounds suspiciously like what he was saying in Get Back. Yeah. He was already kind of thinking, are we just going to do this whole let's record an album thing or are we going to do something else? Do you get the feeling at times that McCartney is trying to generate some excitement in the others? We're not going to just do another album. We're going to do something different. Because otherwise, as John and Ringo both said, they would have been happy sitting in their gardens, enjoying their lives. Paul, who's like, well, we got to get back to work. Hey, this is going to be exciting. We're not just going to do another album. We're going to do this or Magical Mystery Tour or Get Back. But it kind of wasn't that way on the White Album. The White Album was just, oh, we've written all these songs. We kind of have to record all of them. Right. 
Yeah. The White Album was the result of the overflow of creativity from being in India. It wasn't Paul saying, let's go into the studio. No, but because they had tons and tons of songs written. Whereas in all these other projects, John always says, I didn't have anything. I don't have anything. Well, and as with Get Back, I mean, you know, that was very much a tradition of John Lennon's. And and maybe that's why when John keeps harping on it at the beginning of Get Back, both Paul and George kind of dismiss him a little bit. Oh, you'll come up with something. You always come up with something. Yeah. Maybe that was part of the the competition between John and Paul, because John was not going to let Paul write all the songs. Okay, we're here now. I'm going to (laughs) write. And they knew that. So after George Martin speaks of the album being a museum piece, he mentions Mary Quant. Mary Quant was a fashion designer. I Mm -hmm. always see her name mentioned in these sorts of things, but I've never really understood the significance of Mary Quant. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, maybe that's just an Uh, era thing. The miniskirt. Oh, she's the one who's responsible for the miniskirt. That now makes a lot of sense. Right. I'd never had that association made. I read about it in regards to blouses and certain other types of women's clothes. And so, right. so, so certainly some more revealing designs, but I've never actually heard someone say she's the one who designed the first miniskirt, or at least who popularized the miniskirt. I can't say that she was the first to ever do it. She might have been, but she certainly popularized it in her fashion. Any hot designer, everybody goes out and buys their clothes stella mccartney (laughs) exactly keep in mind there's also this thing going on in england there is a societal shift from the older generation to the younger generation fashion everything was changing yeah i've always kind of questioned the role of the beatles in fashion they certainly dictated what was cool but did so many people necessarily go out and dress like them and maybe they did again you'd know better than i would well i can't say i ever dressed like a beetle until there was a period of time when i had a a nehru jacket i mean in the early days everyone wanted beetle boots and you know i certainly kind of get that the little sunglasses became a thing although that wasn't just them right it was mainly the hair the way people grew their hair but they always seem to lump fashion in with the things that they popularized. And maybe so. Well, I can't point to anything directly, you know, certainly sunglasses and John's round spectacles had a huge impact, but you know, I can't point to anything directly and said, well, everybody started wearing madras because of them. It took until the Beatle bands for people to actually tailor Beetle clothes for people. <laughs> right. George Martin continues, It was a joyous spurting out of life. Which doesn't sound like something that I could ever imagine George Martin saying, but he does. How erotic. <laughs> then we move on to Ringo. Ringo telling us that... It was colorful and it was peace and it was love and it was music. Thank you, Ringo. That's what I was saying earlier about 1967. You had to have been there, I guess, because the music and feeling and... You know, love and hippies and flowers. and I mean, it was everywhere. I was living in West Texas. Big deal. Well, George sums it up. Nothing like it had ever been. Which, well, I guess that's true. There's a nice bit of John from uh, the common group of interviews from late 66 
as they caught each one of them going in, where he used to comment that, yeah, well, we're going to go on writing music. We're probably always going to do that. I'm going to do that for my entire life. Those whole set of interviews are actually really pretty nice if you can find them. Yeah, they are. You know, typically we only get like five seconds here and five seconds there. There's about, oh, a good a five or six minutes with each Beatle. It's weird to think that really those were the first times that they had all gotten back together because they had been going in and out of the country. All of them hadn't been in the country in about three months. And that was really the first time that everyone kind of got a look at the new Beatles, the the mustaches. The uh, mustaches. We really hadn't seen them before that. Right. So then we get George Martin being a narrator, you know, talking about the end of touring, bigger than Jesus. And Paul comes up with an interesting quote he takes credit for the end of touring i remember we all used to uh, run in the back of these big vans they'd hired and this one was like a silver lined van a, a chromium nothing in it like a furniture van like with nothing in it just chrome and we were all piled into this after this really miserable gig and i said right that's it have you ever heard paul tell that story before or after, he's always the one, well, you know, I, we might have continued touring if there were changes made. You know, it was the end of touring like that, but definitively, that's it? Well, the, the story that I had always heard, and I can't tell you where I heard it, is that Paul was always the one who kind of said, oh, come on, everybody had kind of gone back and forth. I don't want to do this anymore, all of them. But Paul was always the one who kind of talked them back into it. Because apparently that was his role of the band. But in this particular gig, it was so bad, that's when he said, that's it. And so when he said, that's it, then there was no one to go, oh, no, keep going. Maybe there was just like one night. But I mean, I've even heard that he was trying to talk to George after San Francisco, after the infamous, that's it, I'm not a Beatle anymore, that Paul said, well, you know, we might do this and we might do that. I mean, George wasn't saying he was quitting the band. George was just saying, I'm done with touring. But that understanding of it is the where you've come now. The truth is, at the time, if Paul heard George say, that's it, I'm not a Beatle anymore, to me, I'd hear him saying, that's it, it's over. So I'm not surprised that Paul was, oh, well, we, we could do some stuff. There was no question of uh, disbanding at that point. I wouldn't disagree with that, but it just makes this particular quote here in this special stand out a little bit to me. Right. We get a little bit George Martin telling us that life on the road was hell, which uh, granted he knew. I mean, he had spent some time with them through both 64 and 66. George Martin didn't go on the 65 tour, did he? I don't think he did. It was enough that he certainly knew what life on the road was like for them and that they didn't want to live that life anymore. And he's qualified to say that it was hell. Do you know that he was on the 66 tour? Yeah, because he talks about being there the night that the firecracker came at them. He claims that he was looking at it from above and saying, oh, someone could very well take a shot at them with a high-powered rifle. Right. Then George talks about that they couldn't even get a break in India. You know, he says that they had gone to India because he'd wanted to get a sitar, and there were all these little Indian faces shouting, Beatles, Beatles. <laughs> then George Martin reading more copy. Now, I think he 
kind of gets things mixed up a little bit. Paul had two trips, and we, we actually have his home movies from both of them. The trip to the States and, and the safari were not the same trip. No, no, no. The safari was in 66. The, the trip where he went to Jane's birthday party was in 67? Yeah, April 67. Okay, all right. That, then. And it, it was, that's the reason why Sergeant Pepper had to be finished by a particular date, because Paul was leaving. <laughs> Again, the album has to be done because someone's going away. George Martin kind of conflates those two trips. And for some reason, I had always thought that the Jane Asher trip was first, but I knew that they were two separate trips. Yeah. Paul has conflated them as well. He couldn't have been on a flight to conceive Sergeant Pepper with Mal because that didn't happen until April. He went to Kenya with Mal and they went down to. Spain first. I mean, he had to conceive Pepper. Before they recorded it. Before they recorded it. That's why it's interesting. It's also interesting because we have his home movies from those two trips. We have about a 30-minute reel, half his safari, lots of shots of giraffes and elephants and things. And then half, while it's not Denver, it's their arrival in in Los Angeles, which is also kind of cool. Prime footage of... What did L.A. look like in 1967? Yeah, well, he was also, I think, in Denver because there's lots of snow. Yeah, they, they went to Denver because that's where Jane's show was. Right. has lots of cool footage of his shoes and shopping in Century City in L.A. But it was that trip that he conceived Magical Mystery Tour. Drawing the circle. Right. And it was on that flight. And, of course, Ken Womack tells us that he doesn't believe the, the whole salt and pepper story anyway. The, both he and Mal's family were like, Paul would have known what S&P meant. I've heard more than one version of it. One of them makes sense, and the other one doesn't. So then To get back into the special, because none of Paul's home movie footage is in the special. Right. Not even sure that we had it at that point. That was maybe a later in the 90s thing. I remember buying the VHS tape and just being fascinated by it. Not for any particular reason, but it's like, wow, this is Paul McCartney's home movie footage. Right. Then we get... What we were discussing earlier, Ringo talking about, you know, we were in the garden and Paul would always call us up because Paul was the workaholic. Then we start in with the four track. Here's what I'm interested in from a standpoint of creativity. They weren't together at all, really, until walking into the studio to record Strawberry Fields for the first time. So it's kind of interesting about how things were being pitched. Clearly, Sergeant Pepper, even though it may have been conceived, when was the idea of it pitched to the rest of the band? Yeah, it would have had to have been in and around this session. Right. We have John Spain demos of Strawberry Fields Forever, and that pretty much does lead directly into Take One. Right. I think what there's seven or eight different movements as he moves the song along. But at the very end, he has it kind of close to what he's going to do. But there are also some interesting choices already have been made because John's Mellotron had to have been brought from his Kenwood home. No, they no? they rented a separate Mellotron. The EMI Mellotron is not John Lennon's Mellotron. We have since learned that. So they didn't bring in John's Mellotron. They went out and rented one at EMI. Hmm. That would stay at EMI for a while, and then they would actually... <laughs> replace it with the one which uh, they used on the white album i just read a thing about uh, some engineer recalling them bringing john's mellotron in so 
<laughs> based on serial numbers and that's also to a certain extent why there are four separate Mellotrons out there marked as being the one that was used on Strawberry Fields. Right. But the Lennon one, we know pretty much the tracing of where it was. You know, it may be that the engineer thought it was John's Mellotron, not realizing that they had rented it. Right. It could be. We've gotten legitimately all these various studio versions of on the Sgt. Pepper anniversary edition. We get like one demo. I think they put take one and take seven. You know, take one being that acoustic based version and george martin plays a little bit of that here again this is where the yes. shivers started to go up your spine for the first time we heard this strawberry feels forever. i think that version is very charming strawberry feels forever a very simple version of a very simple song we may have had a couple of the strawberry fields demos but to have george martin playing with the faders while he's describing it, a sweet, gentle song starting with the verse. So, so this was still before he'd started with uh, "Let Me Take You Down," right? Uh, and then you know he brings up the the bass and guitar. He comments, uh, "Oh, it's dead simple." And you know, again, hearing that on this the one track, and even with the various isolations that we have, and you know what they did for Rock Band, hearing what was on the actual tape is it impresses me yeah i kind of agree with him they could have put it out like that now george's slide i don't think that was quite right just on the vocal track nothing is real and nothing to get hung about well, again, who am I to argue with the Beatles? But <laughs> right, had you never heard anything else, it would probably sound perfect <laughs> <laughs> because their performance of it is great. The backing harmonies, it's really cool. It's just he thought, I want something else. That's not quite it. John frequently would say, This is not the arrangement I want. Although, you know, as George Martin says, that version is charming, it is charming. It's a very simple version of what at that point was a very simple song. Right. John liked it. Obviously, they put it away, and he said, well, let's do it differently on the Monday. Right. And so we get something which is much more like what we know as Strawberry Fields on the Monday. Yeah, it's the beginning of Strawberry Fields. John decided he wanted it in lower key. It had an introduction for the first time, which was played on that weird instrument, the Mellotron, and became a really key feature and it started with the chorus rather than the verse. Strawberry feels immediately, isn't it? Let me take you down. Double track voice right away. Again, all the rhythm instruments on one track. The voices on three and four. Double track voice, and, and again with the faders, it's kind of cool that he can separate out the two voices there. John is singing it twice. He's got a double track voice across two tracks, and it's really cool to hear George Martin pull those out separate from each other. All the rhythm instruments are on one track. Right. 
And George Martin wonders why. And you had a thought on that. They were learning how to do this because it really was a different way of recording more and more and more. And so, you know, I'm not surprised that things were done in a way that we now go, well, why do they do it that way? Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it's the same thing that we think about. Why are the drums not in the center? (laughs) Right. Right. And they weren't doing it yet on this, but they were eventually going to be bouncing things down and using more than one machine. This is a time of really great experimentation. Innovation with the hardware as well. Yeah, absolutely. Another amazing thing in the Beatles story is, you know, you had Jeff Emmerich as an engineer who is great. I mean, the whole business with the Leslie speaker, it's like... Yeah. You could not have Tomorrow Never Knows without that. Tea towels and miking that was all different, all sorts of stuff that he came up with. So, you know, they were just learning. So George Martin continues. But John thought about it and said, I think I can do it better than that. He said, I wanted to have a bit more bite in it, brass, strings. So I said, okay, let's give it a whirl. He's getting excited here. Right. I noted that starting with the first take on the take seven, they lowered the key. And then when they decided to do the brass strings version, they raised the key again. And I I just thought, well, I wonder why, because it's really high. That version, before it got slowed down, is just barely Strawberry Fields to me. It's so fast and, and high. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And that's really part of the reason why George Martin still doesn't like the glue together between the two. You know, slowing down one and, and speeding up the other slightly to make them match. They pretty much match. There, there's a small step in there. Yeah, I still think it's great. It's one of those you don't know until you know, and then once you know, you can't unhear it. Right. It would have been done differently with Pro Tools. <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely true. So, okay, we, we continue on with uh, <laughs> another version of Strawberry Field. Let me take you down, because I'm going to Strawberry Field. Double track voices on three and four, but with percussion as well on three. And nothing to get hung about, Strawberry Fields forever. Right. And the percussion, it's real weird. It's a bunch of percussionists. You can hear it best, you know, when it fades out, kind of fades back in and the drums are chicka, 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 chicka. But George Martin wasn't there for that. He didn't record that. He didn't produce the backwards cymbal because he and Jeff Emmerich were at a Cliff Richards film premiere. And so uh, engineer Dave Harry's produced that. Yeah, there was a freak out version of Strawberry Fields where they do that all the way through, I believe. And then they only use just that little bit at the end, as I remember from Lewis. And then George Martin is talking about the Indian instruments. He likes saying the word Swarmandela. <laughs> right. Which is an Indian instrument that George had brought back, like a kind of harp. They have a marvelous effect. Uh, then he goes on with more of the orchestral stuff. He talks about the brass stabs with the cello, which is, I guess, kind of reminiscent of Eleanor Rigby. And he concludes with, once we were done, this was the first psychedelic track, which I wouldn't disagree with. Except we're completely ignoring Tomorrow Never Knows. but (laughs) Well, okay, yes. (laughs) A while back, uh, there was 
a music review from right around this time in the Houston Post, and someone had written in, can you describe to me what exactly is psychedelia or what is psychedelic music? And his answer was Strawberry Fields Forever. Uh This was when it was a new record. Right. So again, as with the Pepper Box, George Martin is starting with Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, and I guess technically that is the beginning of the Pepper Sessions. Without a doubt. I don't think that they necessarily went in thinking this will be the next single. So moving on from Strawberry Fields, Paul's response was Penny Lane. Paul comments that that he and John had wanted to be a a Rodgers and Hammerstein, but that he had to give in on the McCartney-Lennon thing, which we've talked about before. Right. And this was an early expression of that. I don't think that this was a thing that he harped on. I mean, now we we definitely know this is something he says over and over and over. But this was one of the early times for him saying it. And he he does talk about writing for Sinatra. It's big band stuff kind of thing. But John had a different take on it. He said, I copped money for the family way. The film music Paul wrote when I was out of the country filming How I Won the War. I said, you better keep that. And he said, don't be soft. It's the concept. We inspired each other so much in the early days. We write how we write now because of each other. I mean, that was certainly Paul being very generous to John. George Martin probably would have liked a little bit more credit. Yeah. Particularly since, as we now know, Paul came up with the melody and that's kind of about it. He wrote a few melodic pieces, 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there. And George Martin is really the one who turned it into a score. Right. Well, you know, it it was kind of the business of music at that point, producing a soundtrack. And Paul was asked to do something and he did what he could. And then Paul has a a great quote here on Penny Lane. Much like John was doing with Strawberry Fields, he was taking a magical childhood place. As we took them from being little localized things to made them more global. I've almost never heard it described better than that. Yeah. Then we get Dave Mason. No, not that Dave Mason. (laughs) He plays the bit out of the Brandenburg Concerto, and then he plays the bit that he played on Penny Lane. He describes that Paul... He'd just written Penny Lane and had had a rather bad backing track, so apparently that was how I came to do it. I don't know about that. I mean, we've got the original backing track. It seems like Paul knew that he was going to have something there that they weren't going to go with this little plinky synth that that was kind of a placeholder more than anything else yeah perhaps i mean i've listened to it and i thought you know if you were to mix the flutes up that that could have been a different kind of lead but certainly paul was inspired it's a great piece we get a nice little section there on penny line then george martin tells us that they moved on to when i'm 64 i mean we pretty much know that story right music hall he had just done a a production of a single the escorts i think there's a similarity to that That was not psychedelic at all. No, not at all. It retains what Paul had written and what Paul had played in the cavern. It was the song for his dad, who was not 64 at the time. (laughs) Right. They finish that. Brian wanders in and announces that the boys need a lift. Uh, You know, I guess it had been a while 
since Revolver. They really hadn't had a single. They needed something to come out. You know, I can see Brian's point of view. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, first of all, Eleanor Rigby had been a number one single halfway through September. So it had been that long. Okay, well. You know, and so uh, I, in a way, I think that whereas the band had decided that their world was different, Epstein was still kind of pushing to this old mop top release plan. You know, we got to have a single like this. But they wouldn't give it up even three years later. You know, there's George Harrison in the Get Back session saying, let's press it. That's a single. We're done with it. (laughs) They still kept that in their mind to a certain extent. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, I guess. (laughs) So Brian's saying they needed a lift. Let's put this out. This will be a great single. And George Barton, as as he said several times... In those days, we didn't include single releases in albums as we thought that was rather conning the public. One of the biggest errors I ever made. And I don't understand why. I don't know why he says that. Why they left it off. I mean, really, the last single was off that album. Elder Rigby and Yellow Submarine were on Revolver. Why couldn't Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane be on Sgt. Pepper? That's a good question. Although, I mean, you know, it would end up on an album, although not in the U.K., soon enough. Well, yeah, it certainly makes that album great, but I agree with his perspective, like it matters, uh, that those two songs belong with Sgt. Pepper. History says it went a different way, but it could have been. Just saying because it was the single it couldn't go on the album doesn't strike me as valid. And then before we get into what is going to be Pepper proper, we get a little section of them all complaining about what life was like at EMI. And we've heard a lot of these stories in other places, that, you know, the business of the toilet paper, which had EMI printed on every sheet. The refrigerator had a padlock on it. So if you wanted a cup of tea, you'd have to, we'd have to break open the padlock on the fridge to get the milk out. Right. And Ringo tells a story which is flat out wrong. EMI being this huge monster company, you know, when they bought the 8-track, the first 8-track in England, you know, they're so cheap, they didn't buy the plug to plug it in. <laughs> it's true they didn't have the right plug for it, but that's just because the board was old. And the other thing is they kept it in the laboratory for a good long time yeah. until the Beatles went in and broke it out. Right. I think you're wrong on that one, Ringo. Well, that's the story he heard at the time. <laughs> he stuck with it. Yeah, and, and again, it, it may just be a modification of something or he misheard something, but uh, it comes off a little weird. Uh, it probably wouldn't have come off so weird then because we hadn't heard all of these stories. Right. And this is where Paul comes in that, and says that it was going to be very boring to just make another Beatles album. And that's what I associate with what we get three years later and get back. Yeah. Because he keeps kind of saying the same thing there. Right. And then so when he talks about the other personas, that everything about the album would be imagined from the perspective of these guys. He gets excited just talking about it. Right. You have to kind of question everybody's perspective on this because I certainly see what Paul is saying. But John said that any of his songs could have been on any other album. His songs were not thought of in that way that I'm writing from somebody else's perspective. And realistically, there's Pepper, there's Little Help, there's the Pepper reprise, and there's Day in the Life. Everything else in the middle could have gone on another album. 
you know, within you, without you, and love you too could have been swapped, and it wouldn't have made that much difference. As a for example, within you, without you is a much more developed and thought out composition, but it's not that far from love you too from revolver yeah exactly so he's not writing from somebody else's perspective paul perhaps lovely rita and she's leaving home and john says he he makes him up like a novelist you swap out she's leaving home with for no one that works just as well also well true so that is part one of our look back at the making of sergeant pepper the south bank show from 30 years ago stick around though because if it's not up yet Part two will be winging your way just as quickly as possible. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher or wherever finer podcasts are found, please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Feaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Strawberry Fields is a song that John had because he used to live next door to this place called Strawberry Fields, which was a Salvation Army place for kids. And he used to bunk over, and it was his little magic garden to sort of play in. So whenever I went to visit him, he'd sort of say, hey, you know, and we'd go past it. He said, this is Strawberry Fields, and he'd give me the gin on it. Strawberry Fields I wrote when I was making How I Won the War in Almeria, Spain. And it took me six weeks to write the song. I, I was writing it all the time. I was making the film, and as anybody knows about film work, it's a lot of hanging yeah, he wrote Strawberry Fields on a Beach in Spain. But really, Strawberry Fields is about indecision, right? He'd go round to the, um, the rest of the cast, you know, asking for, um, you know, those indecisive things, you know, uh, yeah, but uh, maybe, but only, uh, you know, all of that stuff that people go through without actually, you know, uh, you know, I... You know, my tree must be high or, or low. I can't make up my mind. You know, it was uh, one of them where you're sitting on the fence or whatever. It was, uh, that's what I think that song was about, you know. I mean, in Strawberry Fields, I keep saying this, I was the only one I can remember that I'm saying I sometimes know, always think it's me, but, uh, you know, and all that bit. Strawberry Fields, I was trying to describe myself how I felt, you know. And, but I wasn't sure how I felt, so I'd be saying, sometimes, no, always think it's real, but uh, whatever. I can't remember the lyrics, but I'm expressing it haltingly because I'm not sure what I'm feeling. But now I was sure, yeah, that was what I'm feeling. It hurts, man. That's what it's about, right? So then I could express myself. It's a um, Salvation Army home that was near the house I lived in with my auntie in the suburbs. Although I took the name as, a, as, a, as an image. Uh, it's not about, it's just about me, really, mm. or anybody else that's thinking like that. Well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's just no, it's a bit of messy, and then let's get away to Strawberry Fields. A bit of messy, and let's get away to Strawberry Fields. It's just, uh-huh. you know. It's fantastic to me, maybe, at uh, certain points when you're doing it. Mm. And then after that, you can't 
listen to it objectively and it takes till about now say mm. to really listen to it and understand what you're really talking about yourself I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs> 